0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While a report into last year's pride event and altercation here in Hamilton is being released today, John Vest of the Bay Observer joins us to talk about it. Minneapolis City Council has decided to dismantle the police department there. What other changes are going to come from these protests? And the 20 to 29 year old age group in our city is being blamed for the spike in COVID-19 cases this past week. How important is it that we pay attention to physical distancing rules? We'll discuss. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Very controversial report about uh, the police action in Pride week last week, specifically, of course, the Pride rally at Gage Park. And uh, this is not the report, just to be clear on this, this is not the report that uh, was supposed to be released today uh, from uh, Scott Bergman, the Toronto lawyer who's done that. He will do that. It might actually be released today. Uh, by the way, Mr. Bergman will join us on the program a little bit later on this week to explain his uh, processes and and everything that he put into that report. Look forward to that conversation. But the one that's uh, coming up today uh, actually ha- has to do with a, a report from the Office of Independent Police Review Director. And uh, the conclusion uh, in roundabout fashion here, just to get right to the the bottom line here, uh, is that Hamilton police did respond properly to the violence at Hamilton's Pride Festival last year and did the best they could with what they knew about the threat? That's the gist of it. Uh, not everybody's impressed with the findings of the report. Uh, John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hi, John. How are you doing this morning? Very good, Bill. Good. Uh, surprised by, I guess, really no surprise here by the, the findings in this report
1: well uh... you know i think i think we need to take a look at both reports uh... Together. Absolutely. C- certainly the one that's coming up is the one that's been been long awaited Um, you know i i i think any governmental report uh... into a matter like this uh... you know either a government agency or quasi government agency um, i think it's going to be suspected it's, it's like uh... you know when there's uh... When there's a death uh, related to police activity, the SIU gets involved, and frankly, I can't think of a of a public agency that has less credibility than the SIU, rightly or wrongly. But you know, just nobody believes what they say. So, uh, you know, I guess I guess my sense of it, just taking a step back, because I haven't seen this other report that you're talking about, um, is uh, you know, un- unless a report comes out that. It says Hamilton police conspired to stay away from the park and deliberately let things run wild, I don't think, uh, certainly Mr. Kretsch and, and uh, whoever he represents, I don't think they're going to be satisfied. And, I, you know, given uh, the, the hours of tape that I looked at, I, I just don't know how you get an independent determination of what happened that day last year. Well, maybe, this it- maybe there may be some people there that were you know not part of either uh side that that are providing some independent uh, recollection but uh I think it's uh it's going to be tough but I'm hoping that there is some light shed on uh, the actual truth of the matter when when we see the reports,
0: yeah, this is uh, as I look at this thing today, and and, and again, you're absolutely right. These the agencies that review police actions, uh, and this is one of them, the Office of Independent Police Review. Uh, it, it, basically, the, as we mentioned at the beginning, it, it just seems to validate the police's position on this from day one. And we talked to Chief Gert and others, and of course, I'm including members of the Police Services Board not too long after the incident last year uh, about this. And this report basically says, yeah, everything they said was right, but it does conflict. With some of the accounts we've heard from other people that were in the park that day, uh, and even previous to that, suggesting that uh, that there was a, a detailed conversation about what was going to happen at that day and exactly where in the park it was going to happen, yet the police uh, opinion here seems to be that, well, we weren't quite sure what was going on or where, so it took us a while to get there. But when we got there, we did what we were supposed to do. Uh, and your your point's probably well taken. We should mention, by the way, uh, that we did reach out to a number of people today, including Cameron Crouch and uh, and uh, others, uh, to try to get their reaction to this. And all were unavailable now. Uh, I anticipate they're probably doing what you and I are doing, John, is waiting for the report from uh, Scott Bergman, uh, and then try to contrast and compare, I guess, the two of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, you know, I I it's too bad. Uh, things have reached the point where they've reached um, i i was just reading the uh... the letter that uh... mister crutch wrote last week when they raised the uh... the gay pride uh... flag at at hamilton city hall and um, listing a bunch of things that you know the police would have to do they they're talking about you know meaningful dialogue and so on but Quite frankly, um, I, I think there's a line in the sand here, and I, I don't know how it gets crossed. Uh, no matter what these reports say, I mean, uh, just just the, the rainbow flag for a moment. I mean, if they, if for some reason they hadn't raised it, uh, do you think these people would have been silent about that? It was an absolute no-win situation. So they raised it. You got the COVID situation, so you can't do a big public gathering. But, um, you know, what the letters seem to say is, unless you absolutely admit that you're totally at fault, uh, we don't want anything to do with you. So, you know, that excludes, uh, you know, I I have no idea who, um, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, how many gay people of of various uh, orientations are in Hamilton, but... You know, I, I start to question who speaks for who. Um, there, there's a, certainly people that I know are, are not involved uh, in in such an active way. And um, I just, you know, at some point you got to question
0: who's speaking for who. Which is always a problem when you get into situations like this. But, you know, this is actually, as I looked at it over the weekend and the report that we saw this morning, Part of a broader discussion uh, about the the time of change and the transition, and, and there's obviously the problem with Gay Pride and, and what happened last year and, and what we've told are some ongoing problems between that community and the police and the police services board, uh, which very much mirrors what's going on with the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and what's happened, of course, over the last couple of weeks especially. Uh, and the call right now, John, seems to be from both areas, uh... it's it's time to change the status quo uh... you know there i mean in some cases we're going to get into this in a couple of minutes uh, about defunding police services and 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 a number of other things and you know it's about time that city councils and police service boards right across north america started to get their act together and and pretend that you know that they're actually living in the twenty-first century uh... which i think is a discussion we need to have always about you know what has to happen in the attitudes of our elected officials uh, but boy, they're, they're dealing with a Hamilton council that traditionally does not like to change the status quo.
1: No, and uh, I'm, you know, uh, I mean, I'm certainly not here to uh, whitewash the the Hamilton Police Services. I mean, we've had some very troubling incidents uh, over the years. Um, you know, we've had uh, somebody posted something on the weekend that listed all the acts of violence and all the deaths that uh, that have occurred over the last ten years, and. You read that list, uh, and, and frankly, it's uh, it's disturbing, um, you know. So there, there's no question that... Uh, I think policing is, is really uh, going through a sea change right now, or at least I, I think it's about to go through a sea change, because uh, it's clear that uh, we just can't continue uh, the, the way we are. And I, you know, maybe it's just my memory is failing me, but I don't remember... 15 20 years ago i don't remember all these incidents where where guns were drawn and people were shot uh, uh you know for acting somewhat menacing uh, maybe i maybe i missed it or maybe it was covered up but it just seems that there's you know the 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 use of lethal force seems to be on the increase everywhere and uh, so that's a whole other issue and you know i, I guess people thought that Tasers uh, would, would help, but tasers are not totally effective, uh, especially if people are wearing heavy clothing. And so you get into all of that, but uh, surely there are, you know there's, there's some kind of training available in de-escalation and, and training in non-lethal uh, that, that we haven't fully explored yet. I'd like to uh, at least see a discussion about that.
0: How's that going to take place? Because those discussions about use of force, uh, the sorts of force that's available to be used, a number of different things, attitudes, uh, education, all of this stuff, that discussion, John, usually only happens after a crisis has occurred, such as we're dealing with right now. Uh, to, to, what, in the matter of the gay pride community, of course, it was almost a year ago, but that's that's still ongoing. And of course, with the Black Lives Matter, uh, the most recent incidents, of course, uh, in the United States and in, and in other places that we're going to talk about on the show today. Uh, and and when we talk about it in that fashion, in in un, with that umbrella of, of anger, uh, oftentimes about what's going on, is it a rational discussion? I mean, you know, because we've tried to bring up issues in the past about about attitudes about the community towards police and police attitudes back and you know should we have body cameras i mean there's a whole long list of things that need to be discussed uh... but it's it's awfully difficult to have a pragmatic discussion about that most of the time anyway
1: i don't think it's possible uh... to have that kind of a discussion now uh... with uh... you know when when you know demonstrations are still taking place and probably will take place uh, you know for the next little while the time to do it, it would be after things have cooled down a little bit, but by then, uh, you know, the impetus to do it is uh, also cools down, and so so away we go. But, I, you know, uh, I've heard a number of people, certainly uh, American commentators, suggesting that maybe this is finally it, uh, maybe this is the point at which, um, uh, you know, we, we start to get some kind of a reform in the system, uh, you know, we've had uh, police chiefs, uh, we we now are seeing arrests, whereas even a couple of years ago, we weren't seeing uh, officers who broke the law being arrested, you know, going back to the Rodney King thing, where they were just beating the hell out of the guy for a sustained period of time, and, and somehow the jury, or they come out of court uh, not guilty. So there, there's been some progress since then, and but you know, the question is asked over and over again: If, if, if those bystanders in Milwaukee hadn't taken those those camera shots um, for the whole nine minutes, uh, would we would we even be having a discussion about reform
0: now? Well, yeah, that that therein lies part of the problem, of course. And it's attitudinal, and and you know, we we love to point fingers and say, boy, they're they're awful people down there, and thank God that stuff doesn't happen here. But you know, you listen to people in those communities. Uh, and it's uh it's a different s- a scenario that you hear altogether. I mean, the, the the other one that jumps out of me, of course, is the uh, the uh, young kid that was jogging down the street uh, a couple of months ago in February, I guess it was, and the guys basically uh, just ran him down and shot him. And and um, uh, until there was public outcry, until that video was released, uh the district attorney was not going to press charges uh, until so the I video
1: mean, was released by one of the perpetrators. Y- yeah, the exactly. I mean, talk about. You know, not only evil but stupid. Uh, you know that that was a real head scratcher. Why he thought that video was going to in any way uh, exonerate anybody it was beyond me.
0: But to but your it, point, because I've heard the same commentators uh, making the same sorts of statements or predictions, I guess, uh, over the last couple of weeks that this is the final straw. This is the thing that is actually going to be the catalyst for the sort of change that a lot of people are asking for right now.
1: Is it really? I, I think the problems are very, very ingrained, Bill, and I, I you know, as, as optimistic as I want to be, I, I just can't see um, uh, a sea change happening quickly. I, I don't think you get that kind of change happening quickly. I was thinking over the weekend, watching all the demonstrations on the weekend, and I was thinking back to when I was in my 20s. It was the 60s. And, uh, you had Lyndon Johnson passing the Civil Rights Act. You had Martin Luther King, um, seeming to get some traction. Um, there was, there was, uh, you know, you, and even in culture, you know, you, you had Motown, uh, becoming the leading music purveyor in the world, promoting black, uh, performers like they'd never been perform- uh, pr- promoted before. You know, you had Soul Train on Saturday afternoons and, uh. With Don Cornelius, and and it seemed like we were sort of assimilating and getting, um, you know, when I, when I say assimilating, I mean white people assimilating uh, black culture, and it, it really uh, there was an optimistic feel. And now here we we fast forward; it's uh, half a century later. It's it's as bad or almost worse, um, you know, when you when you see the amount of. Uh, death and destruction that's taking place, very discouraging, you know, 50-odd years after passing the Civil Rights Act, and and we still have a situation where black people are being denied the vote. And um, I think, you know, if you're asking about what will bring about change, I think once they get... I think the voting piece is actually more, more important than the rioting piece. Uh, if we can... You know, you get... Uh, um, full voting going on in, in African-American uh, in the African-American world uh, then you'll get change because you'll get change in, in the big cities in the north you'll, you'll get change everywhere and um, to see people still struggling to get registered to vote in, in 2020 is uh, pretty disheartening for anybody who thought there was a revolution going on in the 60s that was going to change everything
0: well, you may remember uh, Barack Obama's uh, address, of course, to the graduating class of 2020. It was a couple of weeks ago, I guess, uh, and uh, and then he talked, of course, about what happened with Black Lives Matter and what happened in, in uh, Minnesota, and and the essence of, in, of both those things was: look at if you, if you're unhappy with what's going on, and many many people are these days, vote. I mean, it's one thing to protest, and you know, I, said, I think I mentioned in a commentary at one point, I said, protesting will draw attention, votes will make change. Uh, well, and, and, and we and need to get that a message, uh,
1: telling them to vote, but, but there are structures that actually prevent them from registering in exactly. some states. Uh, you know, there's gerrymandering and there's, uh, all kinds of barriers to, uh, to being able to vote. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a you know, in 2020 and uh, supposedly the cradle of democracy. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's like Egypt, you know, it's, it's just crazy. And, you know, that's that's what needs to change. I think if you can get at the voting piece, uh, then I think you can get meaningful change with uh, with an engaged citizenry that's that's representative of the population uh, rather than, you know, excluding uh, one group because, you know, they'll vote you
0: out. Well, which is a debate that's been going on here in Hamilton for how many generations now, John, as to whether or not this city council is actually representative of the Hamilton community?
1: Well, you get what you pay for, and uh, there's nothing, There's certainly no barriers to any citizen of this community from voting. Uh, there's none of that going on here. And people, uh, you know, 70, those 70% of the people that don't think it's important to vote in municipal elections, uh, we've said it over and over again, they only have themselves to blame. There, there are certainly no institutional barriers uh, to, to people being able to vote in a municipal election in Hamilton. And, um, you know, here you got people in the state striving desperately to try to get on the, on the voting list. And here we have people in our community that just squander uh, their vote. Uh, they have no interest in voting. And, you know, that's, uh, that, that's a whole other issue for another day. But clearly, um, uh, you'd get a different council if, uh, if you want a different council. You can exactly. get a different council, but it involves uh, people getting out and voting.
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah, more about that later, to be sure. John, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, of course, from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to continue our conversation about what's going on on a worldwide basis. Uh, and those, of course, are the public demonstrations that are happening all over the place now, uh, and to do with the death of George Floyd a few weeks ago now. He will, by the way, uh, be laid to rest tomorrow tomorrow in Houston as a public viewing I suppose uh, later on today and then uh, the funeral itself tomorrow uh, very moving uh, ceremony a uh, mem- memorial ceremony was held last week of course uh, in Minneapolis but as we look at the people's reaction to this around the world and how people are, are rallying and protesting in, in just about every major city you can think of these days uh, we have to ask ourselves just where will this end up what kind of change may come from these protests Uh, Already, Minneapolis City Council has decided to respond to this uh, in a way that a lot of people didn't think was going to happen anytime soon. And, of course, and that is basically by uh, dismantling uh, their police force in Minneapolis. Uh, Minneapolis City Councilor Stephen Fletcher had this to say.
2: We would get resistance uh, from the Federation. We would get ignored by the officers. Um, and uh, we, would, we would get just noncompliance with rules that we passed. And so everything we were trying to do wasn't working.
0: So that's their reaction to this. Uh, there are calls for similar actions in police services right across North America uh, about police brutality and systemic racism, et cetera. I mean, we've, we've had those conversations, and we'll continue to. But where is this all going to go? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Jeffrey Reitz, who is a professor of sociology, R. F. Harney Professor of Ethnic Immigration and Pluralism Studies at the Muck School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Uh Professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you. In our lifetimes, if have, have I mean, I I'm I'm old enough to remember the civil rights uh, riots <laughs> and, and protests that happened uh, back in the nineteen sixties, uh in, in you know, Selma, Alabama and so many other different places. Uh This one's different, for a lot of reasons. It may be for the same rationale, but for for racism and the problems that have gone on. But this seems to have taken hold with almost a whole generation of people, not just with the black community.
3: Well, that's right. And you have to remember that uh, this type of event that has uh, happened in Minneapolis has actually happened uh, in many cities across North America, including in Canadian cities. Uh, Toronto, not long ago, a police officer was charged with second-degree murder for uh, killing uh, Sami Yatin, mm-hmm. um, uh, with a you know with with firearms, and uh, there was a lot of protest, but not much came out of this. Now we see these huge uh, protests, and I have to um, remember that this is part of this is happening at a time when we have a pandemic, a global pandemic, which means that people are upset and frustrated to begin with in general. Uh, In addition to that, many of them are at home, working at home, and um, available for uh, mobilization. And uh, at the same time, within the U.S., you have a political year where people are uh, debating a lot of issues. So the political climate is right for a massive outpouring of emotion, which is what we're seeing. And that's what's really different about this case. It's produced this mass uh, uprising, in a way, and... Minneapolis is a city, uh, you know, not unlike some Canadian cities, will feel that they have a very progressive image, and they're taking a quite a public relations hit with this uh, event. Uh, you know, the, Minneapolis is a city that doesn't get much attention even within the United States, let alone internationally, and they're being uh, seen in a very negative way now. So I think a lot of the uh, politicians in Minneapolis want to be seen as doing something effective, to uh bring about change and restore uh the, the you know the good image of Minneapolis
0: you raise an interesting point and, and it's one I think a lot of us have considered over the last little while uh, I mean anybody that saw the video and I think just what anybody who wants to have seen the, the the killing of George floyd uh it, it's it's disgusting and it's sickening and, and hopefully you know the justice will prevail in the, in these situations uh in whatever fashion is going to be exacted but this is resonating with so many different people and and i guess time and place are almost everything this is not just the protests that we see in minneapolis or in new york or in los angeles or london england or germany or france i mean we've seen them all over the place professor uh, your points well taken this is more than just about as as outrageous as the killing of george floyd was it's more it's about more than that isn't it so uh, it seems to be about Again, I hate to, to be trite and say the system, but it's it's about the handling of COVID by governments. It's about the unemployment situation. It's about the economy. All of these issues seem to have conflated, and, and, and we've just got people that are saying, this is enough. We just can't take this anymore.
3: i yeah, add to that that uh, the President Trump has injected himself personally in this situation and taken one side, so that uh, all those folks who are unhappy with uh, uh, President Trump's leadership uh, have an additional incentive to uh, to get out there and do something about this
0: yeah and and he's nothing doing nothing except throwing gasoline on the fire uh, by some of the things he said and tweeted and the, some of the actions he's taken, of course uh, over the last little while, which is only making a bad situation worse, I would think. So where do we go from here, Professor? I mean, it, we, you know, the, the call is out for change, uh, to, to change the way police services are delivered, maybe even to change the whole idea of police service. Uh, systemic change, societal change, things of this nature. All things that we've heard of before with uh this there's there seems to be a, a a gravitation right now by people all in all of these cities that we've talked about right now that says we want to see something now and uh, they, they seem to be leaving the message here that we're not going to stop doing this until we see some of that change
3: well that's right and there may well be uh some changes how significant uh, they will be would remains to be seen i think as you mentioned the there's always a pushback from from the police and uh, that's we've seen that everywhere and there's, well, there's no question that uh, people, while they may be very dis- uh, dissatisfied with the police, also uh, you know, want and need uh, uh, personal security that the police are supposed to be providing. So uh, when you talk about dismantling the police force, I think a lot of people are, are expressing their frustration and anger and uh, determination to do something. But uh, there will be a police force that will emerge from this, uh, and the question is how different will it be? So that's one thing, but you know, a lot of the uh, energy behind this also, I think, has to do with the inequalities which are underlying this—the black-white inequalities, but uh, inequalities in economic circumstances. Statistics Canada just put out a study today showing that um, the economic insecurity of uh, caused by COVID nineteen is is vastly disproportionately visited upon those folks who are less well-educated and less well-paid. These are the people who are unable to work at home and either have been laid off or at least face the possibility of being laid off. And uh, a lot of people feel that uh, this political situation is going to generate energy to lead to change on that one. Now, that's an even more important uh, dimension of change uh, that's being suggested. And in a way, the The focus on the police is distracting attention from that, uh, at least to some extent, although it to some extent also reflects that situation. So the two are related, and I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, the pressures for change in in these different areas uh, play out over time.
0: I get the sense that the, 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 they're blaming government for this, not, not necessarily for the virus itself. I mean, that, you know, that's, we all we know, but the way the government's handled it, uh, you know, trying to, to try to limit the virus, uh, the policies that they've put in place, uh, you know, and notwithstanding that, I mean, let's face it. From a philosophical standpoint, we elect governments to look after us, uh, to make sure our economy doesn't collapse, and to make sure that that we're going to have a lifestyle that's that's you know the way we want it to raise our families, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's not happening now. And and when people are angry like that, professor, I, I guess the 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 initial reaction is you want to reach out to somebody. You've got to blame somebody, uh, hold somebody accountable. Right now, it seems to be government.
3: Yeah, government, and and focusing specifically on the police. But I think. The, the more general pressure on government is reflected in what the uh, city council in Minneapolis is doing. You know, as I mentioned initially, they're they, they under a lot of pressure to uh, restore the good image of Minneapolis uh, nationally and internationally. And so their, uh, their desire, I think, is to do something dramatic. As, as I mentioned, though, the, the real... These things come and go. These, you know, there was a, a time a, a few years ago where there was a shooting in Florida and there was such an uprising of young people across the country demonstrating against this and for gun control that we were all sure that there was going to be some kind of meaningful gun control emerging in the United States. It just didn't happen. Uh, you know, over time, uh, the, the NRA dug in and the various forces, uh, the, supporting the gun legislation that exists in the United States dug in and they prevailed because uh, the energy behind the protest basically dissipated over time so, uh... you know I, I don't want to be too cynical here but at the same time it's important to recognize that the passions of a moment may not actually play out in terms of uh... long-term uh... Change, as desirable as it might be
0: and on that point and and this is i think true on both sides of the border uh, that change, if it is going to come, invariably is going to be a political change. It's going to let's face it, the elected officials are going to have to change policies, alter policies, whatever the case might be, uh, or risk losing their jobs. But to your point, if if like all other things, this anger and this frustration starts to fade after a while, uh, let's politicians. <laughs> may uh, just ride this out and figure, okay, I'll take the heat for now, but you know what, a year from now, this is not even going to be the issue, and uh, we can just carry on and, and do what we ne- have been doing all these longs. Because uh, I, to your point about the gun control, it's a very apt, I think, analogy. Uh, you know, the Mitch McConnells and, and Lindsey Grahams and th- those people in the Senate, just, uh, look, we're just going to block it, you know, and, and you can't get us out of this uh, this job, so, you know, that's, that's just the way it's going to be. Notwithstanding the best interests and best wishes of all those people that were pushing for gun control, it just didn't happen because they, the entrenched people in those elected positions, said we're just not going to allow it.
3: And I think one of the things you're seeing in the U.S. is the, uh, the impact of the fact that we're in a political year. So a lot of those uh, politicians that you're refer- referring to are actually coming up for election uh, in short order. And uh, certainly that's the way Donald Trump's behavior is being interpreted. And uh, he may be panicking a bit and trying to find some kind of, uh, you know, political lever that's really going to salvage his political uh, hide, so to speak. Um, Whereas in other jurisdictions, that may be, you know, not as pressing. Here in Ontario, for example, we're a couple of years away from an election. So I think while politicians are certainly concerned with how they are seen by the electorate in terms of effective handling, the consequences for them personally may not be felt for a while and so that gives them a little more um, leeway to manage the situation and try to get through the crisis without political damage to themselves
0: but for that change to occur the change that a lot of people are calling for whether it's through the policing or even through governmental operations uh, as, as former president obama said when he was doing that uh, his speech to the, the the graduating class of twenty twenty uh... Mm-hmm. the power to change is through the voting i mean protesting you know, will will draw attention, but voting is actually making difference. In other words, if the people in office aren't doing what you want them to do, you get them out of there, but you can only do that by protesting. I, I don't remember anybody in our time anyway, Professor, that that resigned because of public pressure, you know, because of the riots that were going on in the streets. It doesn't happen that often for elected officials in North America anyway, mm-hmm. uh, but will they transfer this anger and this frustration and this yearning for change uh, to actually go out to the ballot box and do something about it?
3: The political situation in the United States is very difficult to read because of the fact that uh, the, the political uh, landscape is so highly polarized. And so uh, there are a lot of people who disconnected completely from mainstream media, for example. It's important to remember that Donald Trump was elected when he had the endorsement, of not a single major newspaper in the United States. None. None of them who had traditionally endorsed Republicans actually endorsed Donald Trump, and yet he won anyway. And the reason for that is that his followers are, are listening to different sources of information and different, uh, different depictions of what's actually uh, happening. So, And, and Donald Trump has proven very effective in uh, using the tools of communication to keep that uh, polarization uh, active. And so it's one of the important things to, to just watch how, uh, how the perceptions that people have of what's happening are being shaped by the various forces that actually impinge on them in their everyday lives. So, so we have you know, one group of people who feel uh, that this enormous emotion to uh, bring about change, and uh, so many of their friends and people that they know and the source of information they have agree with them, And so they, in a way, tune out to the other side. And that's an important thing not to do if you want to have a realistic appraisal or or perspective on how events are likely to unfold, because all those folks on the other side are still out there, and they're going to cast votes, too. So we have to watch the entire uh, debate as it unfolds over time and not draw too many conclusions from whoever it is who's dominating mainstream media uh, attention at a particular moment.
0: It's, it's one of the real problems I think we have, uh, especially the polarization that goes on, because uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> let's face it, I, I think I see this probably on a daily basis from the, the reaction we get when we do different topics and have different guests on, on a show like this. Uh, people read and see what they want to see. In other words, you know, the, the social media forums they follow or, the, as you say, the television or radio broadcasts that they they tend to watch or listen to, invariably to really just reinforce the feelings that they already have. They don't want to hear the other side. They just want to know that they're right and, and that their views are the right views.
3: That, that's exactly right. Uh, we I think that we're fortunate here in Canada that the degree of polarization that we have is not as extreme as it is in the U.S., it's more also regionally based. Uh, that's been our uh, nemesis, so to speak. Uh, the difference between Quebec, Central Canada, and Western Canada, Atlantic Canada. Those regions have very different perspectives on on events in Canada. We're quite familiar with that over time. But I think the the bitterness uh, in the U.S. is totally regionally based, of course. But it it uh, it's. Uh, more uh, strictly ideological and uh, and therefore becomes tinged with morality uh, much more easily and that's a uh, fairly uh, serious barrier to effective communication and understanding as, about the viewpoints that different groups actually have
0: Fascinating to watch as this unfolds and uh, the psychology of uh, those that are involved in this. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for your time today. Great getting your perspective on this
3: my pleasure. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Jerry Brights, of course, Jeffrey Brights, rather, from uh, University of Toronto, from the uh, the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The problem we've got with a lot of the uh, restrictions that have been put in place because of COVID-19. Well, it all is hinged on us doing what we're supposed to do, and those are the the big three, right? That uh, health officials have been saying since day one of this pandemic, wash your hands, practice physical distancing, and stay home if at all possible and stay safe. Well, since the weather's turned, I mean, that's one thing to say, you know, back in March when it was still kind of crappy outside weather and, we you know, we didn't have much of a spring and it was kind of miserable. But now that the weather's nice, we're seeing that happen in communities all over the place where they're just ignoring uh, physical distancing. And it's a real concern, and that may actually become even more of a problem with the expected announcement today that uh, the Premier is going to say that restaurants and patios can go open, you guys can open now. So are we setting ourselves up for just a second wave of COVID-19 by doing this? Uh, Interestingly enough... uh, (laughs) Our Medical Officer of Health and nurse hey, we're here, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, uh, talked to us about some of the updated statistics and about the possibility of a second wave, and she actually identified a certain demographic, which uh, surprised an awful lot of people. Here's what she had to say. What we see in common amongst the cases of late is that um, they tend to be concentrated in the 20 to 29-year-old 20 age group, and um, really even in the, the first half of that that group. So... The 20 to 28, that demographic seems to be where a lot of the new cases are coming from. That's a an interesting revelation. Uh, you may remember way, way back in the early days of COVID-19, we were told that, oh, yeah, it really just kind of affects people over 60 and, and those with medical conditions. Not so, according to some of these stats. So how important is it for us to maintain physical distancing? I know we're all getting tired of it and getting a little stir-crazy sitting around the same four walls all the time, but uh... if we don't do that what are the implications please to welcome dr isaac bogash staff physician uh, general internal medicine and infectious disease associate professor in the department of medicine at the university of toronto uh... doctor thank you so much for the time i know how busy you are through the course of the day as a matter of fact we had to delay our discussion with you today because i know you had an emergency call to make uh... just what every time i see you on tv you're wearing scrubs so i mean <laughs> i don't know if you get any time off at all so we're really appreciative that you could join us for a few minutes today oh not a problem at all happy to chat let me ask you, doctor, about about what's happening with the physical distancing and the fact that we seem to be thinking, well, enough is enough. We've done this long enough. We've got this virus under control. That that seems to be the attitude an awful lot of people seem to have these days. How dangerous is it first to adopt that sort of mindset?
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, certainly we know how this uh, how this infection is transmitted, and, of course, we know that if people – cluster close together it can easily be transmitted from person to person uh so it, it should come to no one's surprise that if we start getting crowds together or people cluster together uh in close contact for prolonged periods of time we're going to see transmission and you know it, we're, it, it, it's it's just it's just going to happen so um it's also happening elsewhere in the world we're seeing you know for for example uh you know uh, there was a, a, a spike in cases in south korea spike in cases in singapore spike in cases in japan uh, spike in cases in Iran. I mean, we know what's going to happen. They don't call them communicable diseases for nothing. And if people cluster together, there's so little immunity. There's so little people, there's so few people in, in Canada that have had this infection and recovered from it relative to the population that, you know, this this will be easily transmitted from person to person.
0: Just let me ask you about intent here, because I think you know we, we're trying—at least most public officials and I think elected officials even—are trying to adhere, are heed the evidence that you and, and other medical professionals are giving us about this. But are we are we being strict enough? I mean, there are some jurisdictions I know you've talked about in the past uh, that made it mandatory, for instance, to wear face masks and and protective equipment. Uh, we we just suggested here in Ontario and in in most parts of the country, in fact. Uh, and, and I time and time again the odd time I do venture out here to go to a grocery store or, or the pharmacy uh, I'd say probably sixty to seventy percent of the people are wearing no personal protection at all I don't know if they're oblivious or if they think it's not going to happen to them uh, where where are we on this yeah it's tough i'm I'm not to be, to be fair I'm not entirely
2: sure and uh, you know obviously some we've seen some stores say you know what if you're coming in here you've got to put a mask on we've seen some jurisdictions in canada for example a suburb of montreal say if you're out in public you've got to put a mask on um so we're starting to see the pendulum swing toward that and obviously i think it's it's very reasonable and i just don't even go back to your first point i don't think it's some dichotomy between we have to you know either be on lockdown or completely open the economy i I really think that there's there's a balance and we can you know move forward and open things up safely uh and and obviously heed what's happening in the world around us and, and in our local environment, in terms of the you know, number of new cases per day and the burden of infection in various communities. And we can use that information to, to either, you know, lift restrictions or reimpose restrictions. But of course there's simple things like, you know, if, you, if you're in an area where you can't maintain physical distancing, you should put a mask on And I get that we all live in little bubbles. In the bubble I'm living in, you know, I was in the LCBO, I was in a grocery store and I was in a, in a drug store this weekend. And I would say that you know, probably about, 50 to 70% of the people were, were wearing masks. Everyone was adhering to physical distancing measures. There was hand sanitation stations around. There was little stickers on the floor showing you where to stand, and people were abiding by that. Like, and again, I appreciate that's my little bubble that I live in. It was pretty good. Uh, I get that that's not going to be reflective of elsewhere or everywhere in the country. Uh, so, you know, this issue of mandating masks, if you mandate it, you've got to provide them which might be an issue. There's an equity issue as well. Not everyone might have access to masks. So you, you know you wouldn't want to restrict people's access to a, a store or the subway or a bus because they don't have a mask. So you have to be providing them uh, as well, which I think is important to do and they should be doing so anyways.
0: Yeah, to that point, I was in Indigo the other day. They just finally opened up, of course, about a week and a half or so ago. Uh, and there's a sanitation station right by the door. And and you're right, I saw a lot of people there that did have masks on. And they are maintaining physical distancing. I mean, we don't even really need stickers on the floor. We just know hey, be six feet away from each other and be cognizant of that. Uh, because we really haven't done much really since since January about of this virus, except to control the spread. I mean, we haven't we haven't beaten it down. We haven't got a vaccine for it yet. We're we're really kind of marking time until we get that vaccine. Hopefully, it's going to be sooner than later. But in the meantime, this is really all we can do at this stage, isn't it? Is be you know play defense.
2: <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, yeah, uh, I still think we're sitting on the cusp of some really interesting clinical studies, and we might have some drugs that we can use to help treat it. There might be some drugs we can use to help prevent it. Uh, hopefully there'll be a vaccine at some point. But, you know, as of today, we don't have much. We, we have a ton of progress toward answering these questions, but we don't have uh, access in our hands, any tools to really combat this virus, apart from, as you point out, the same things that we've been doing for centuries, physical distancing, hand, hi- hand hygiene, uh, and, and essentially, that's it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a tough place to be in. And, and, and coupled with that, I know we hear about how many people have had this infection, and it's obviously tragic. We've heard about the deaths related to this, both in Canada and globally. Of course, that's tragic as well. But if we actually step back and look at the global population, or even the Canadian population, and the proportion of people that have been infected and recovered from this infection, it's still remarkably small, even in the hardest impacted places. So there's likely very little immunity in the community. So if this virus is introduced or reintroduced in certain places, it's going to take off again if we're not adhering to those physical distancing measures while we're in this pre-vaccine era.
0: But when we talk about those stats, and and you're absolutely right about the percentages of people that are actually getting the virus or testing positive in a situation like this, or could be asymptomatic, uh, that tends to make some people feel as if, you know what, this was no big deal. You know, they told us this was going to be devastating. This pandemic is going to kill hundreds of thousands. It has. Uh, But maybe, you know, the numbers, especially here in Ontario, aren't aren't as bad as they had predicted at the same time. But uh, instead of minimizing the impact of of COVID-19, would we be better to take out from that the message that well it's because we did what we were supposed to do
2: yeah i mean uh this is the, the the public health paradox i mean if you do everything right which i'm not saying everything was done right but we you know we locked down and we prevented uh basically a catastrophe with with uh by by doing that by locking down in ontario and elsewhere in canada i mean we don't have to see look too far to see what happens if you don't do that i mean look at new york city just got pummeled mm-hmm. northern italy was pummeled Iran and Wuhan were just pummeled. I mean, this is this is what it looks like when your healthcare system is stretched beyond capacity. There's obviously an unacceptable number of of deaths, not even ill people, just deaths related to COVID nineteen. In addition to that, there's an unacceptable number of deaths related to non COVID nineteen related issues because the healthcare system is stretched well beyond capacity. And now we're starting to see data emerge looking at deaths related to heart attacks and strokes during this period of time. And it's going to be, uh, as this data rolls out, it will come to no one's surprise that it's going to be really, really sad because it this, this extends well beyond COVID-19 into other areas. So the lockdown is, you know, obviously was vital to prevent those scenarios from happening here. And of course, you know, sure, we still got bumps and bruises along the way. Of course, the long-term care uh, facilities were, were just, you know, it was devastating there. And, you know, I'm not saying we did everything right. We clearly didn't. But we still, it could have been, and it's not could have, it would have been so much worse uh, had we not done that. And uh, that's, the, that's what we call the prevention paradox. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to convey that message to people saying, see, I told you so, it wasn't so bad.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm hearing that from more and more people. But at the same time, uh, I, I remember those pictures of New York City and, and the overflow, and some of the other m- municipalities. And th- there's actually some pretty elementary evidence of it too. I mean, what was it? About two and a half weeks ago, I guess, Doctor, that uh, the state of uh, Wisconsin said, "Okay, fine. Th- this whole thing is this physical distancing is it's it's unconstitutional." And within minutes of that decision, the bars, the restaurants were full. And here we are 14 days later this past weekend, and they're reporting a spike in Wisconsin. I mean, you know, who could have oh, seen yeah. that coming?
2: Yeah, exactly. You don't need a crystal ball here. Also, watch the southern United States closely. There's 20 states that are showing an increased number of new cases per day. Uh, uh, watch Florida starting to take off. Uh, Nevada starting to take off. Uh, Arizona and Texas are as well starting to take off. And, you know, again, I only know what I see uh, with some of the scenes on TV and some of the scenes on, on in, in other forms of media. But it's almost as if there's no lockdown or no uh, measures in place to reduce the risk of transmission. You know, you see scenes of packed restaurants and bars and, and people out and about. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with being out and about practicing physical distancing, but this is clearly not that. And I think we're going to see, huge spikes in cases there. Like for example, the Arizona's ICU capacity is uh reaching uh its reaching capacity. They're running out of these special devices in the ICU. It's called an ECMO machine. I mean this is for the sickest of the sick, but they've reached their capacity of their ECMO devices in the ICU. I mean that's a that's a problem. That's a problem. So you I think we should watch these states closely as and, and there's this is a lesson on how not to function in the course of a, a, a pandemic.
0: You, you talked about the uh, medical procedures that have been delayed because of this, Doctor, and they, as we know, hospitals right across the province now are starting to kind of ease back into that, uh, some of these elective surgeries, whatever they might be, for just situations. But with the, the fact that there could well be a second wave uh, sooner than later, we don't know when that might happen, are hospitals still kind of hedging their bets and making sure that they are keeping uh, some semblance in some part of the physical building itself, uh, you know, available in case there is a spike?
2: Yeah, I can't comment on all hospitals, but I know that many hospitals, at least in Ontario, and 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 actually probably a lot elsewhere in Canada, still have this, I guess, the blueprint for the pandemic plan, where you know we can sort of switch on a dime, reconvert some of these areas dedicated for COVID nineteen patients, and get them ready for patients affected with this, redeploy staff to various areas if they need extra hands on deck. It was actually pretty interesting being a part of this, uh, you know, as I'm a frontline healthcare worker and, and watching these redeployment strategies and. And strategies to really point all resources toward uh, uh, you know, COVID, a surge in COVID-19 cases, thankfully, that never materialized uh, because of the public health measures in place. So I think, I think we certainly have the capacity to do that and to do it quickly if there is a second wave. But, of course, the key thing here is you know, no one would be surprised if there's a second wave. It's just do we have the tools in place to identify it quickly? and mitigate this if it if it's if we start to see it so you know rapidly identify places with outbreaks of covid19 rapidly deploy public health infrastructure into those areas to really ensure that it doesn't spread and reduce the risk of transmission in the community you know that's rapid diagnostics contact tracing supporting people through a period of isolation to really reduce uh the size of a second wave so are we going to have one yeah i mean no one would be surprised if we have a spike in cases uh a bit later on but uh hopefully we have the lessons and the tools in place, the lessons learned and the tools in place to reduce the size of that if it does happen.
0: But that contacting and uh, tracing, it, it, that's kind of beyond our control. That's, that's really up to the quote unquote authorities. Are you comfortable with the level of, of, of efficiency that we're using to, to do that here in Ontario? Okay.
2: So I don't know. I, if you asked me that a week ago, a week plus ago, I would have said we need to significantly improve on that in some jurisdictions, not all. If you asked me that today, I'm not entirely sure. I think there's been a lot of focus on that over the last couple of weeks to improve the efficiency and at least transparency about what was happening with contact tracing. Uh, And I'm cautiously optimistic that any issues with contact tracing are rapidly being ironed out simply because I think there's been, it's just been a a factor of, uh, you know, frontline physicians and public health people and media really holding uh, officials accountable we're saying, you know, we're seeing patients and no one's called this individual. It's five days and this person's COVID positive. Like, where is the contact tracing? Uh, so I think there's been a lot of uh, pressure and um, I, I certainly see improvement on this front and I hope that we continue to see improvement on this front. So that I'm not saying that issue is fully ironed out, but it, I think it's in the process of being ironed out.
0: Doctor, always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you again for taking so much uh, time for us this morning, and uh, stay well yourself, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. You
2: will. Have a great day. Thanks for having me on. You
0: too. Take care. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, of course, uh, from uh, the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.